This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. The moment of anticipation <laughs> every time with these cameras. I just love it. I know, it. exactly. I'm out in the forest with wildlife biologist Kim Sager Fradkins. We're checking a camera trap, a remote camera she set up on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. And then it's either relation or disappointment. I know. These cameras take a photo anytime an animal walks past the sensor, anywhere, even deep in the forest. It's a non-invasive way to monitor the wildlife species in an area. She takes out the memory card and uploads them to her laptop, hoping for some good snapshots of unsuspecting wildlife. Oh, and there they all are. Wow. And then all the images. Oh, who's that lady? She's our volunteer. No way. No animals on this camera today, just photos of the last human volunteer team member to check this camera site. But that's okay, because this time I'm not actually here for the animals. I'm more interested in the camera itself. You see, when I first got my start in fieldwork in the early 90s, we didn't have anything like these cameras. And when Kim was fresh out of school, there was a very different way to catch an image of a furry passerby. Remember those cameras that used actual rolls of film? Seems like a long time ago already, doesn't it? The simple point-and-shoot kind, like a Kodak. First, you'd set one of those against a tree. You used a string (laughs) and a part of a hanger, and you had the hanger attached to the string and the string attached to a piece of bait, and then the animal would come and pull on the bait which would cause the string to pull and cause the hanger to depress and take a photo. So that's how far we've come. Oh my God. In was 20 Mag- years. Was MacGyver involved in exactly. that? Exactly. Funny to think that this was cutting edge back then. Researchers were limited. The cameras could only take 36 pictures before they were full, not to mention having to then drop them off at the pharmacy to print them. But today, things are a little different. With digital photos and massive storage drives, each one of these new high-tech cameras can take thousands of images. Amazing for wildlife science. The amount of data is astounding, exciting, and overwhelming all at once. It can almost be too much of a good thing. This much data can be hard to handle. Over the next two episodes, we're going to be taking a look at how technology is changing the way field researchers and wildlife scientists do their work. But tech is nothing without some good old-fashioned field skills. So today, it's back to basics. How to catch a cougar. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild. The cougar, elusive, stealthy, and mysterious, and so very tricky to study. Even in a state like Washington with over 2,000 cougars and 7.5 million people, these big cats, these American lions, are rarely even seen. So researchers have to get creative. 
Not much is known about them here on the Olympic Peninsula, but I'm here to join a crack team on a major research project that has set out to change all that. They're out to build a detailed window into the secret lives of these solitary creatures in this wild corner of the world. Like a lot of studies, it starts with the basics. How many cougars live in this area? But this team also wants to look not just at numbers, but behavior too. Things like dispersal. How do these animals move across the land and into new areas or home ranges? Do they ever stand a chance of getting across a major highway like Interstate 5 that runs down the west coast? And if they could, cougar conservationists dream of these cats being able to even meet up with their cousins in the Cascade Mountains to the east. Cameras, like the one we checked with Kim earlier, are one way to get at some of that information. Another way is to get a little bit more direct, to track a cougar's every step, with a little help from a GPS satellite collar. So basically we can go in here and we can say, like, we want to see whatever, the last four weeks of data. I meet up with Kim Sager-Fradkins at her office. She works for the Elwar Clallam tribe, heading up their wildlife research. She's sitting in front of her oversized computer monitor, and with a few clicks of her mouse, boom, she brings up a really intriguing map of the area. Oh, God, that's cool. So we just zoomed from the whole map of the world into the neighborhood here. With How many cats is that? So this three. represents one, two, three, four, six cats. Wow. Kim has collared several cats with satellite GPS systems, and the movements of each of them are dotted all over this map. Each cat has a different color, and the GPS data from the collars shows where they travel. It looks like a rainbow-colored spider's web on her computer screen. It's Let me show you Charlotte. So cool. Brings it to life seeing it on a screen like that, doesn't it? You know, where they're spending their lives. This type of information is key, because knowing where a cougar is is just the first step in understanding why it's there which is one of the first building blocks of understanding how a cougar lives, and the first step towards making sure that their needs are met if we're going to keep them around into the future. This GPS collar technology is way different to the early days of collars. It wasn't satellites. It was radio frequencies, VHF, and involved a lot of trudging around the mountains, holding an antenna at arm's length trying to get a signal. A beep, beep beep from the radio-collared animal, a, a cougar or a wolf or, in my case, a grizzly bear. Then you'd have to move to a new spot fast to triangulate the animal's position, take a bearing with a compass, draw two pencil lines on a paper map, and where they crossed was the location of your animal. Kind of. More of an art than a science for sure. But GPS collars have changed all that. These days, you don't need to leave your desk to track an animal. Back to Kim and her computer screen. So like the cat that we're interested in today. Kim pulls up the movement data on one of the cats in her study. One they've named Bramble. So if we go, mm -hmm. there's Bramble. Okay. She's a young female, just starting out on her own. What was the most recent location you had then? So right here, so she still hasn't uploaded, unfortunately. Meaning the satellite hasn't obtained a recent location on Bramble, which is a problem because Bramble's collar battery is dying. So Kim needs to get to her fast to replace it before it stops transmitting altogether. The plan is to capture Bramble to give her a shiny new collar, something you definitely can't do from the office. But catching a cougar is easier said than done, especially with this cat. 
One of Kim's colleagues, Andy Stratton, a young, energetic field researcher, remembers a recent, rather unsuccessful attempt to capture Bramble. They followed her into a small canyon along a river. And she just, I saw her vert up a cliff from one old growth down log to another, like 30 feet. I think it was nothing. It was just, wow. it was incredible. Cougars have evolved not just for stealth, but for agility and power too. I can already tell that catching this cat isn't going to be easy. But before we head out to try, Kim wants to show me Bramble's most recent kill site. A close cluster of GPS collar locations tells us that Bramble spent some time in one place, so probably on a kill where she preyed on something. It's one of the last known locations of Bramble, and it's just a few miles away from Kim's office. As we park near the location, I see Andy already disappearing into the thick forest out of sight. I can tell he lives for this stuff, and he has all the energy needed to track these big forest cats. Andy is our go-to young, no children. The tw- like we all were in our 20s. Yes, right. When we could be out in the field for 12-hour days. Yeah, those were the days. Ten minutes later, we catch up with Andy, and he's pacing a small area with his eyes pinned to the ground. He's found the kill using the coordinates from Bramble's collar. It's a deer. No, that's, 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 his, that's his skull. Wow, yeah. I thought that was his. We got oh, yeah. He's, uh... Okay, so it's a deer, right? Yep. And you can smell... You can smell it now. Pungent odor here. That's that's from the tooth right there. Where a canine went right through. Mm -hmm. Wow, probably went right through the skull, maybe came out through the eyeball almost nearly. Mm -hmm. No, that doesn't go through there. The deer skeleton has been picked clean. You can picture the mayhem of the hunt between these two species here, both fighting for their lives. One the prey, one the predator. As the successful hunter, Bramble would have had her fill of meat first. It's one of the first things they do is start nomming down on the ribs until they open up the chest cavity enough to eat the, the lungs, heart, and liver. So that's real key on a, on a cougar kill. Um, bears don't really do that. When a cougar takes down a deer like this, they can't consume it all at once, so they'll cover up the carcass and sit on the site for a couple of days, maybe even as long as a week, gobbling up as many calories as they can before moving on and leaving the rest to others like ravens, coyotes, and worms. So this was Bramble's most recent meal. Mm-hmm. Bramble's most recent meal. Mm-hmm. But now the CSI works and starts, right? That's exactly mm-hmm. what we call it. The kill site investigation is an important part of the puzzle. It can reveal things about a cougar's life, like which prey species it killed and ate. After all, if there are no prey species in an area, there are no cougars. So when they have an active kill site, Kim and her team place camera traps there to record cougar behavior and even interactions with other species. The kill site cameras are like those that I checked with Kim earlier. They can record photographs, but also importantly, video. And there's a lot to learn from both. There are 74 cameras on a grid system that covers a very big portion of the peninsula, all collecting data that allows a peek into cougar numbers and behavior, from the big picture to the smallest of details. At the kill site, every detail is logged. This is where Andy would put the data in on his app. Mm-hmm. And this is where we would pull out a paper data form <laughs> that we were talking right. about. Right, right. <laughs> Old meets new. So here's Andy's app. 
There's a lot of information right under our noses here, and in the age of apps, there's no better way to collect it. Andy clicks through and answers the prompts on his phone screen. And so you've got options there, kind of looking mm -hmm. at kill, bed, scavenge, nothing, and other signs. So you mm -hmm. check the kill box. Yeah, and then that'll take you down a, a certain path. It'll ask what the species was. With the tap of his finger, he enters information on sex, age, and a description of the habitat. Distance dragged, blood or hair in drag mark. God, it oh. sounds like a murder scene, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. <laughs> so much you can learn from a pile of bones on the ground. There is. There's a lot you can think you know. It's amazing how often you're proven wrong, though. <laughs> and then adding all of this tech to it helps, though, doesn't it? It's like layers of information that end mm -hmm. up spewing out what you really want to know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's very cool. I love this wildlife detective work. But what I really want to know is, where is Bramble now? You've got me so curious about this Bramble. She's, she's one to <laughs> she be curious about. She sounds like about. an intriguing <laughs> individual, yeah. When we come back, we get one step closer to Bramble, with a bit of help from technology and some good old school bushwhacking. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as number one, asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you, KUOW listeners, want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast. It is snowing outside right now, which is not ideal. Today is the day Kim and her team are going out to capture Bramble the cougar and replace her failing satellite collar. But we also have snow on the ground, which is great for tracking. It's 8 a.m. We all meet at Kim's office to prep for the day. There are about five people on Kim's team. I'll go on the floor, Okay. Everyone knows their job, and they each get down to their serious tasks. Looks like they're prepping for a heist. Kim prepares the drugs for the tranquilizer dart. Before putting it in her bag, she wraps it in an extra puffy jacket. It's just you don't want the drugs to uh, get too cold or start to freeze or get slushy. We couldn't have timed this trip any better. About six inches of snow has fallen overnight, and snow is exactly what you dream for when you're tracking wildlife, because it means you can see their tracks easily pretty simple. There's been tons of snow overnight and so we're heading out to see if we can find some cougar tracks in this fresh snow on the logging roads and uh, if we find tracks there's a good chance we'll find a cougar. I'm full of nervous energy. It's not every day you can expect to run in with a mountain lion or actually even a glimpse of one. Now before we get much further into the topic of capturing a cougar or any wild animal for research I do want to acknowledge that this is invasive and it can be messy. It's stressful for the cats and for the scientists, but these researchers are careful and they've weighed the pros and cons of doing this kind of work. It's not always an easy decision. Mark Elbrock is with an organization called Panthera. They study big cats all over the globe to help protect them, and they've partnered with the Elwa tribe to help Kim and her team with this cougar project. There's more of Mark in the next episode, but for now, I just want to share a bit of our conversation with him about captures. As we were chatting with him, my producer Matt asked about this. 
you know, some people view capturing as like really invasive. What do you, what do you say to those people who are like, oh, you shouldn't be out capturing cougars or what? You shouldn't be. You shouldn't be out capturing cougars for no reason. Of course not. And um, my answer would be, what is the value of the data? Why are you doing it? Sometimes putting a collar on a cat is the only way to protect the species as a whole. If you want to help a population, if you're concerned about a population, you need to know how they're dying so that you can address those issues. Sadly, most wildlife studies come down to that question, mortality. How are cougars dying? Most of it is human-caused. Was the cat hit by a car trying to cross a highway? Did it get a disease? Was it poached or hunted? It would be next to impossible to get that information without a collar, no matter what technology is available. How can you understand and protect them if you don't know what is killing them? The second most important thing that collars really give us is movement data. The cougar population on the Olympic Peninsula is small, and it's cut off from other cougar populations in other parts of Washington state by highways and towns. From a cougar's perspective, it's a very fragmented landscape they live in, so neighboring cougars are hard to find. As a result, the gene pool is small, so researchers want to see if any young cats, the ones that disperse from where they were born, will be able to make the journey out to other parts of the state to help genetic diversity. And for that, the movement data from a collar is critical. And for these reasons, Kim and Mark have decided that the data collected from collared cats is justified on the peninsula. Oh, nice. It's time to head out to find and capture Bramble, starting with her last known satellite location. There's Bramble. Kim switches from the satellite GPS to the VHF radio signal from the collar. She holds up the antenna to try and pick up a live location on her, and this is where the old school techniques come back into practice. We begin to drive miles of rough forest service roads, listening for a signal. For this, the cat has to be pretty close by. At the same time, we're looking for fresh cougar tracks in the snow. Kim is hanging out of the truck window, literally sitting in it, scouring the ground. Field biologists call this cutting tracks, and if the tracks are there, they're pretty easy to spot. They're as wide as my fist. But it's a race to find them before fresh snow fills them. A new storm is coming in, and the temperature is frigid. Come down here to the gate, everybody. Copy. We're on our way back. We spend an hour searching and listening. And then we see Andy up ahead. He's stopped his truck and he's out looking at something. Of course, he was out earlier than everybody this morning and he found what we were looking for. Tracks. Faint, but definitely cougar tracks. Yeah, these are probably two, three hours old. Is that it? Yeah. And you said you saw a bunch further up as well? Uh, back down that way on the way in. She's covering miles even just this morning, right? Oh, yeah. Since last night, she's gone at least eight, ten miles. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, she finished that kill we were at yesterday and on the search. Bramble was here, but we may be a bit too late. Unless some four-legged technology can help. It's time to release the hounds. 
These dogs are an essential part of this capture work. It wouldn't happen without them. It's the human's job to find the tracks in the snow, but then it's time for the hounds to take over. And if you think about it, dogs really are one of the oldest forms of technology. Humans have been using them to do the things that we can't do for thousands of years, from ancient hunting partners to today's wildlife research. It's astounding how tuned in they are. They live for this stuff. These hounds can smell a cougar from almost half a mile away. The dogs smell around the area for a few minutes, for the scent of Bramble or her tracks. But despite their enthusiasm, too much time has passed. The scent has faded, and the dogs can't follow it. It's really frustrating, but the houndsmen load the dogs back into their kennels on the back of the pickup, and our search continues. Then... There's a break in the case. All right, peeps, technology. Technology in the field. She finally updated. She hasn't updated in days. Where you guys saw oh, the, she did? You guys saw that she updated at noon. Wow. So and so this is a noon location. 25 minutes ago. Right here. The satellite GPS delivers a brand new location right to Kim's phone. And this is a game changer. We now know exactly where we need to be to find her. Bramble did pass right through here, but now she's on the other side of the ridge and moving fast. Yeah, I mean, this is... Yeah, I think we should move on over there. So we have a new plan. We take the bumpy gravel road around the ridge where we hope to have better luck finding fresher tracks before the scent fades. We search for tracks as we drive, and as we come around a bend, I see Kim jump out of the truck ahead of us. You got some tracks, guys? Oh, beautiful. Bramble is headed down the hill towards the river in the valley below us. This looks really promising. Oh yeah, fresh, fresh tracks. You can see the toes really clearly heading off through the trees here. It looks like a bushwhack that we're about to start. This is promising now, yeah. (laughs) We've got fresh tracks. You've got a a radio signal. You've got a smile on your face, Kim, I love it. (laughs) My adrenaline is up. The tracks are just minutes old. I can see every one of her four toes where the cougar jumped onto a downed log and leapt into the forest for cover. The satellite has brought us exactly where we need to be. Now it's down to the dogs, and they know what's coming. The plan is to release the dogs right where the cougar tracks are. They'll track the cougar deep into the forest until she climbs a tree to safety, and once she trees, we move in. Now we cross our fingers and hope she trees quickly. And we wait, see what the dogs do. The houndsmen release the dogs, and it's game on. I'm going to head down the trail behind the dogs now. They're onto the trail. They've gone. Hold on, they've gone. So much for my plan of keeping up with them. Okay, that's one, two, three, four dogs. They're off. But no problem. The dogs are also wearing satellite collars, so the team can follow their trail towards the cat on a GPS unit. So we wait. Their barks fade into the distance, and a few minutes go by. No one knows how this will go. Then we see on the GPS that the dogs have settled in one location. They may have Bramble up a tree. And I know how this sounds, dogs barking loud. It's intense, but the information Bramble can provide is important. If Bramble is up a tree, the dogs will hold her there as we humans make our way out to the site. Easier said than done. First, down a steep, snowy slope. There was a river crossing to do. Now in the middle of this big blowdown, which are all these leveled trees that are just completely flat on the ground. So it makes for some tricky 
footsteps here. Especially with a microphone in my hand. Storms have blown down big trees everywhere, and they're covered in ice and snow. The group has split, and I'm alone, following Andy's tracks, dog tracks, cougar tracks, anything I can find. Okay. Pretty slick as well, underfoot. Gotta place your foot and trust the tree isn't gonna give out. Oh man. Gotta love. Oh. Oh. Gotta love this bushwhacking. Not as fit as I used to be. Oh. I'm glad you can't see this. It's not the most graceful thing in the world. Amazing to think where these cats go so effortlessly. After 30 minutes of bushwhacking, I'm relieved to hear the dogs barking getting louder. Okay, I can hear the guys' voices now. I'm closing in, hoping they have bramble up a tree. Then, through the forest, I see faces. Andy and a couple of other guys have made it here already. The dogs are circling a tree and barking at the sky. Finally, I get my eyes on this phantom cat. Where's she, honey? Way, way up. See your tail coming right through there? Very top of that. Very top of that snag right there. It just broke off the top of that tree and she's sitting on it. Oh my god, right at the top. Right at the top. Just sitting right on the Oh my god, that's incredible. <laughs> I sitting straight on the top of a snapped off snag. Her tail flicking like that. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Looking down at us, almost like she's got her arms crossed there, kind of pretty cash. She's just laying down. For a moment, I can't even take it in. It's Bramble, and she's beautiful. Her brown, moustache-like face markings, and calmly staring down at us like she doesn't have a care in the world. Like your house cat looking mildly irritated at the lesser mortals around her. Wow, hello, Bramble. But there's a problem. She's 80 feet high. The tree she chose snapped off in a storm at that height, and she's lying right on the top of it, on the tip of the broken trunk. Kim assesses the situation carefully. Normally, right now, the cat would be tranquilized with a dart from a rifle. The cat would then climb down to the ground and fall asleep, allowing Kim to move in to take her vitals and replace her collar. But Bramble is way too high. The dart will never reach her. A cat in the hand. Mm-hmm. Right, it's just like right there. right there. So close, but so far. Bramble. The team members look at each other, a bit dismayed, like she knew exactly what she was doing. Even if a dart could reach her at that height, Kim knows it would be too much to risk. Bramble might injure herself on the way down the tree. We're all out of options. So we have to be at peace with the fact that she's just hanging out there and we're gonna have to get her another day, but at least we're seeing a cougar. But she might evade us even more next time because she's learning our tricks. Oh, she's the one in charge here, isn't she? You can just tell with that look she on her is. face. She's like, have you seen Suckers. this all before? Yeah. <laughs> you can't get me up here. <laughs> Bramble has literally ended up as the one on top today. Kim calls it. The chase is off. Bramble wins again. As the light slowly fades, we start the slog through the snow back to the trucks. My sweat has turned cold and my body's exhausted from adrenaline. But I'm happy, and despite the disappointment, everyone else is too. 
no matter how good the technology is, Bramble prevails. Bramble abides. Fortunately, Bramble's old collar is still working for now. The team will look for another opportunity to replace it. But in the meantime, Bramble is still adding to the masses of data being collected by the project, along with the other 12 cougars in the study. Thousands and thousands of GPS collar locations, remote camera photos, videos, kill site data. It's a treasure trove of information. All this data, but now how do these scientists make sense of it all to build the picture of life for Bramble and the other cougars on the Olympic Peninsula? The solutions might surprise you. Join us next week when wildlife research meets artificial intelligence. If you want to see some great images and video of our encounter with Bramble, check out our Instagram at The Wild Pod. Thanks to our amazing photographer, Megan Farmer. The Wild is a production of KURW in Seattle in partnership with my work at the Uproar Fund. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. And our production team includes David Brown, Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Kyle Norris, Dyer Oxley, Theo Popescu, Mariah Powell, Brendan Sweeney, Jeannie Yandel. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm your host, Chris Morgan. Thanks for listening. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as, number one, asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you, KUOW listeners, want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast.